All right. Good evening, everybody. Hello. And uh, hi to the uh, live stream people. Uh, welcome. I, I don't have any real, real announcements except I hope to see you guys this Sunday. Uh, there is no Bible study or uh, youth confirmation this Sunday because we have the congregational meeting. Uh, but other than that, let's go ahead and stand and we'll begin worshiping. The Lord Almighty grant us a quiet night and peace at the last. Amen. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to Your name, O Most High, to herald Your love in the morning, Your truth at the close of the day.
Let us confess our sin in the presence of God and of one another. Holy and gracious God, I confess that I have sinned against You this day. Some of my sin I know, the thoughts and words and deeds of which I am ashamed. But some is known only to You. In the name of Jesus Christ, I ask forgiveness. Deliver and restore me that I may rest in peace. By the mercy of God, we are redeemed by Christ Jesus, and in Him we are forgiven. We rest now in His peace and rise in the morning to serve Him. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, the epistle reading is from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we're afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. And if we're comforted, it's for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the fifth, the thirteenth, I'm sorry, St. Matthew, the fifth chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. This is the Beatitudes. And Jesus opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ.
The Old Testament reading is from Zechariah um, chapter 1. I'll talk more about why we're reading Zechariah here in a minute. <clears throat> Zechariah says this, On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. And then I said, what are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I'll show you what they are. And so the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, these are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, we have patrolled the earth. Behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, against which you have been angry these seventy years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, Cry out, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my city shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Well, so I thought it would be fun, uh, well, for me mainly, to talk about some of the uh, vision prophecies in Zechariah during the four midweek services that we have together. So Zechariah, let me just take a few minutes here at the beginning to set up what's going on with Zechariah. Uh, Zechariah is uh, one of the last three books in the Old Testament, Haggai, uh, Zechariah, Malachi. Um, Post-exilic prophets, which is fancy language that means after Judah was sent to Babylon for 70 years, was brought back home to Judah by the Persians, by Darius, and allowed to rebuild the walls and rebuild the temple. God sent them these three prophets, along with Ezra and Nehemiah, but God sent them these three, these three prophets to prophesy to them in their context. And basically the main job of these, these you know, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi was to say, basically I have two messages, keep on building the temple. Don't let up on that. That's what you've been called to do. It's a very discouraging job building the temple. Lots of opposition. Um, keep on doing it. Keep on working hard. But second of all, repent and believe in the gospel so that when the temple is rebuilt, you can go in and worship with a pure heart. These are the, these are the two things. We're trying to encourage them in that context. Okay. Now, Zechariah is different than Haggai and Malachi in that Zechariah has a lot of weird visions. Um, we call these visions uh, apocalyptic. Apocalyptic is that we, that's that's a word that our culture uses for like, you know, the final destruction of the universe. Uh, that's not what the word apocalyptic means um, uh, in its original sense. It means a mystery being revealed. Again, let me can I give you a few clues about apocalypse? So you guys are familiar with apocalypse. It's like the, you know the weird language about like the four horsemen, which in Revelation comes from uh, this right here. These four guys on horses who ride out to the ends of the earth. Uh, you know, you have um, 
uh, huge statues made of partly gold and partly bronze and partly clay. You've got dragons. You have all these weird images. You have earthquakes and the sun being turned to darkness and the moon being turned to blood. Lots of weird images. None of these are meant to be taken literally. None of those are meant to be, oh, that's what's going to happen. There's going to be these four guys on horses who are riding around. Instead, what they're meant to do, is, we, we don't have this in language, so this is going to sound weird to you, okay? What they're meant to do is to infuse actual events with cosmic significance. So, back in the day, if there was an event that was going to happen, and somebody wanted to say, this isn't just a normal, fill in the blank, normal battle, or normal morning, or a normal trip to the bank, you would like put this weird cosmic language in it. Uh, I'll give you an example, and I've done this, I've given you guys this example before. Uh, you know, a Ralph Waldo Emerson's poem about the Revolutionary War, uh, about the battle at Concord Green. Uh, here, the embattled farmers stood and fired the shot heard round the world. That's what this, uh, you know, that's, that's the way that poem goes. It's actually, the shot that the farmer shot there actually wasn't heard round the world. It maybe was heard a mile away at the most. That's the way acoustics works. But what does he mean? What does Ralph Waldo Anderson mean? He means that the beginning of the American Revolution was an important cosmic event in the history of the world, in the history of the globe, you know? So how does he do that? He infuses it with this apocalyptic language. Here the embattled farmer stood and fired the shot heard around the world. I'll give you another example from the Bible. In 2 Samuel 22, David is describing how Saul was chasing after him and was threatening to kill him. And David prayed to God, and God delivered David from Saul. And here's, here's how David describes that deliverance. He says this. This is in 2 Samuel 22. So he prayed to God, and he asked for help. And then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because God was angry. He sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. And then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. Well, if you go back to 1 Samuel, none of that literally happened. <laughs> you know, there was no massive earthquakes when David was running from Saul that saved him. There wasn't, you know, there wasn't great fountains of the sea bursting up from the ground. There wasn't huge flashes of lightning and massive storms. What is David saying? David is saying that when God rescued me from Saul, it had cosmic significance. It wasn't just another king being rescued. It was the Messiah. It was the, the great-great-great-great-grandfather of the true Messiah who was being rescued. It has caught, and so how does David say that? He doesn't just say, listen, guys, I got rescued from Saul. Super, super important. You're going to want to mark that down. That's important. He doesn't say that. The way he does it in his culture is apocalyptic language. Okay, that brings us back to Zechariah, and we're going to look at four weird dreams, that he visions that he has, some of them more weird than others. Next week won't be as weird as this one. What are we going to do with it? So here's the thing. We're going to look at the main meaning. What's the cosmic significance that's being discussed here? And we're going to avoid getting trapped in the details. We could spend a long time kicking around the idea of what does it mean that there are myrtle trees here in this vision. And frankly, there's just no way to know what it means, and it might not mean anything. Most, most literature is meant to evoke thoughts, not to explain. So, you know, if you read a poem, you don't like try to unpack what every single word means. There's a feeling that you get. There's, there's a, something that's evoked with the poem. That's what's going on with this vision. Now, does, maybe the myrtle does have, myrtle trees do have some sort of deep allegorical meaning that we're not privy to. But 
we're not going to get trapped in it. We're going to look for the main meaning and the cosmic significance of the events that they're describing. All right, that was all introduction. All right, uh, let's jump into this here. So, Zechariah has this vision. He has uh, nine visions. We're going, to look, we're going to look at four of them, okay? And in the night, verse 8, he beholds there's a man riding a red horse, standing among myrtle trees, and there's three other horses. And then he asks, what are these? And the angel says, I'll show you. In verse 10, the man who was, standing on, the man who was sitting on the original horse among the myrtle trees answered him and says, these horses, these horse riders, are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth? Probably some sort of angelic beings, right? Verse 11, and they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, we have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. The angels, the angels go out and they look out over the whole world and they come back and they say, everything's quiet. Everything is at ease. There's no wars going on. Which sounds like it's probably good news, right? Except for the angel of the Lord, who's on the original red horse, doesn't take it as good news. He hears about the quiet of the world, and he says to, the, he says to Yahweh, verse 12, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, against which you have been angry these seven years? Why is the angel of the Lord not happy when the other angels say, everything's at rest in peace? And the answer is, is that the goal isn't ease. The goal isn't peace and lack of stress. The goal is for God to come and fix these things. For Israel is a, Judah is they're slaves here still. I mean, they've been allowed to go back to their land, but they aren't in, they aren't in charge of themselves. The Messiah is not there; hasn't shown up yet. The temple's not built. God Himself has not moved back in with them. Just the fact that there's peace and ease doesn't mean that things are the way they're supposed to be. In fact, this is one of the dangers of the American church: is that one of our goals as the American church is peace and ease. We would love it if everything would just go our way and be comfortable. And if we have to get the cultural relevance to make that happen or the political power to make that happen, that's what we want because we just want to be left alone. We just want, we just want everything to be okay and for people to leave us alone. You know, just everything be at peace. That, that actually is not the goal of the story of the Bible right now. The goal that they're waiting for is for God to come back and make all things new, and they understand that if that was going to happen, there's going to be minimal peace and ease. There's going to, the day of the Lord is going to be destructive. It's going to be hard. It's going to be hard for everybody. People on the outside of the kingdom, people on the inside of the kingdom. The goal is not peace and ease. Instead, what they need is, they don't need, they don't need peace and calm and safety. They need comfort. They need comfort. That's what they need. Verse 13 says, the Lord answered gracious. How does the Lord answer the, 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 the lament of the angel, which says, how long, O Lord? The Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked to me. He answered gracious and words of comfort. He gave comforting words. What they needed was comfort. Not the peace and the ease, but they needed comfort. Same thing with verse uh, 17. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts. My city shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. What God is offering them instead of peace and ease is uh, comfort. So somebody might be saying, well, I don't know. I, I actually would say this if I heard somebody say this. Like, so what's the difference? What's the difference between the peace and the ease that the angel of the Lord is discontent with 
and the comfort what's the, that God is offering. What's the difference between ease and peace and comfort? Okay, here we go. Uh, here, here's a definition for you. Comfort is joy growing up in sorrow. Comfort is satisfaction growing up in dissatisfaction. Comfort is confidence growing up in fear. So comfort is not joy growing away from sorrow. That would just be joy, right? Comfort is joy growing up in the midst of sorrow. So, So what he's saying is, I'm not taking you out of the sorrow. What he's saying is, I'm offering you joy in the sorrow. That's what comfort is. So, so here, biblical comfort, look, so if you're going to comfort somebody, if you're really going to comfort somebody, you have to have, this is important, you have to have one foot in joy and one foot in their sorrow. Comfort only exists if it embraces both joy and sorrow. Comfort can't just be all joy. That's shallow and nobody buys into that. You know, like if you ever felt bad, and this is usually an immature thing, you know, you feel bad about something maybe, maybe when you were younger, and you have a friend who tries to cheer you up by being funny or by being cute or by being flippant, you know, that doesn't do anything. Like if somebody's like telling jokes to try and get you to feel better, that doesn't do anything except make you mad, right? Because they're totally not identifying with you. They're, com- they're, they're, they're standing outside of you and saying, hey, you shouldn't be sorry anymore. You shouldn't be sad anymore. You shouldn't experience the brokenness you're experiencing anymore. Come on over here with me and have a good time. This is like the Benini film. Do you remember this is like 25 years ago? The Benini film, uh, Life is Beautiful. It was an Italian film. It was very po- actually very popular in the United States in the mid-90s about uh, the Italian man and his son who during World War II, they were Jews, and they got thrown into a concentration camp. And the man wanted, he desperately wanted his son to survive. And so he told his son, this is a huge game. We're going to play a game. And everybody here is a part of the game. The German soldiers, our fellow prisoners. And if you get 1,000 points, you win. And the way you get points is by hiding from the German soldiers. Or if you can successfully pretend that you're not Jewish, you get lots of points for that. And at the end of the game, if you get 1,000 points, he tells his son, the Americans will come in and give you a tank. And his son's super excited, and he starts playing this game. And throughout the movie, you know, the big charade is going on. The son's convinced this is a whole setup. I'm on like this, you know, it's like a Truman Show thing. I'm on this vast set, and this game is happening, and I'm going to win this tank. And at the end, he does. He makes it through the war. The son does. And nobody, none of the the German soldiers or guards find him. And the Americans come through to liberate, and one of them is on a tank. And he runs out, and the American soldier pulls him up on the tank, and he gets to ride on the tank. His father gets killed. His father like, is trying to protect him this whole time and manages, to, through protecting him, to get himself killed. That's all fake, though. Right? The, the, movie doesn't, the movie doesn't end with the son being told, guess what? It wasn't really a game and your father died. It doesn't end that way because that would be real. It ends with the son being happy. That's fake. And everybody knows it's fake. So uh, when Angela's... Uh, a uh, brother passed away. I remember this vividly. Angela's uh, brother passed away, and at the funeral, um, you know, lots of people were there. Lot, people from Angela's workplace were there. And, and Angela, did you think Ellen's watching this live stream right now? Okay, so I can go ahead and say this. Uh, so a- Angela had, you know, the, the publisher 
who was the boss of her boss, the, the main editor. Angela wasn't necessarily close with her, any more than most people are close with the boss of two people above them. But she had lost her son in a drowning accident. And uh, at the, the, the people that Angela worked with, people that Angela knew who she was closer to, but at the funeral, it was Angela and her boss who had lost the son, who like hugged each other and held on to each other real tight for a long time. Why did Angela bond with her? Because she had one foot in Angela's sorrow. She knew how to comfort Angela because she was there with Angela. All the rest that anybody else had was well-intentioned, but I'm really, really sorry for your loss. But without one foot in Angela's grief, she wasn't going to experience that. You have to have one foot in the sorrow. But you can't be consumed. You can't have two feet in the sorrow, right? You can't be Eeyore. You can't say, yeah, you're right. This is miserable. Well, we're all going to die. You're going to die too. You can't have that. You have, what, 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 we, what we crave and what we need when we're comforted is somebody with one foot in joy and one foot in our sorrow. That's the way that biblical comfort works. What is materialism? Let me ask you this question. What do materialism and nihilism and the Eastern religions all have in common? You don't have to answer. I'll just pause for effect there. Uh, they all believe that happiness is an illusion. Happiness is just an illusion. Now, for the Eastern religions, happiness is an illusion, and so you should just forsake it. For Buddhism, happiness is a trick to get you to have more desires, which will damn you to longer cycles of samsara and, and, and regenerate. And uh, uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Reincarnation, thank you. And uh, for, the, for, the, uh, for, the, for, the, uh, for Western materialists and nihilists, uh, happiness is also an illusion. It's not real. Um, it's, it's a chemical reaction to different factors around you. It's a socially constructed response to somehow matching up with some sort of socially constructed standard that gives you some sort of pleasure. But it's not real. But here's, what they have in, here's, what they, here's, what, here's the difference between the two of them. For the Eastern religions, since happiness is not real, it should be completely rejected and shut off. You should shun it. You should long to be free from your desires. For the Western materialist and the nihilist, uh, happiness is not real, so you have to chase it and grab onto it and hold onto it as tight as you can, no questions asked, because it's fleeting and going away, and you will soon die and be nothing. And so you grab onto it and don't let anything go. In fact, there's, you know, we, we, we medicate ourselves like crazy to prevent ourselves from losing happiness. We will go to any lengths, even, even uh, you know, devout religious people will go to any lengths, including pasting theology on top of their desires to convince themselves that, yes, I need to be happy. God wants me to be happy. That's the main goal in life is being happy. And here's what I'm saying. Both of these can't possibly be true. Christianity, though, is prepared to grant both of them the ground that they ultimately seek while sitting in judgment on both of them. Here's what I mean. Only Christianity. You, you check it out, and if you disagree with me, please come and talk to me. I, I, I like conversations like this. Only Christianity is it's the only worldview that's fully equipped to embrace completely the brokenness of this world. Not as something to ignore and say, well, I just got to get to this next weekend. You know, I'm going to go watch the football game and get drunk with my friends, and that's all I'm looking forward to. But it's something that's real, and it's here, and it can't be run from. Christianity, though, also embraces true joy and happiness and says that has ultimate realistic existence in our world. It's not fleeting. It's not something that you're just imagining because certain chemicals fire when you see that pretty girl or when you think about the love of your children 
or when you look at you know, a, a prime rib steak, it's actually real. It has contact with ultimate reality. Both of these things are true. And when God gives us comfort here in Zechariah, when God, offers, when God asks us to offer each other comfort, what he's asking us to do is to sit in both ultimate realities that we now have in the broken universe. Sorrow at a world that's been crushed by human sin. At a world that's going to involve failure, loneliness, ultimately death, right? But also to have one foot in the satisfaction of knowing that God's in charge and that the things that you love, the desires that you have, the pleasures that you get out of this life have purpose and meaning and validity because God is a God who gives pleasure and happiness and desires. Christianity is the only one that's prepared to do, do both these things. Now, how does it happen here in the text? How does a relationship with God offer both these things? Well, look what God does here in the text. How does God comfort us in Zechariah 1? Two things. First of all, look at verse 15. I am, uh, no, no, verse 14. The angel who talked with me said to me, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am, exceeding, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. I'm exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. What notion besides jealousy better captures the covenant reality of the pain and pleasure combined of God's love for us? Jealousy is both the pain you know, of the rejection, the pain of the brokenness, but also the passion of the love. That's what jealousy is. God does not... So God... God God is crushed. Let me say, let's say it this way. God is crushed with the brokenness of this world. God is crushed with the pain of us cheating on him. And yet, simultaneously, he thrills to the chase of trying to draw us back to himself. He's absolutely stone cold in love with you. At the same time, he's crushed by you and I abandoning him. What's the word for that? It's jealousy. What, what are we saying? God lives in comfort. God lives in the brokenness of this world and God lives in the love for his people. God lives in the brokenness of creation and God lives in the love of creation. God is, God is hurt by our straying and God is excited by drawing us back to himself. God is a God of comfort. God himself lives in comfort and offers that to us. Here's the second way, the most important way. Look at verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord. What is the house? What is the temple that God is having rebuilt there? So the temple is Jesus. It's a picture of Jesus before Jesus. The temple is the physical place on earth where God lives. The physical place on earth where God forgives sins. It is the building that Jesus makes obsolete when he comes to earth on that first Christmas. What is, what, what is, what is God saying here to Zechariah? The building got torn down. The building's going to be rebuilt. My house will be rebuilt, he promises. I will return to you. I will come and live with you again. The house that was torn down is the house that will be rebuilt. What's he talking about? Not just the building that was destroyed in 586 BC and then rebuilt 80 years later. What's he talking about? He's talking about the ultimate temple that was torn down and three days later rose again. He's talking about God's presence here on earth, blown up, ripped apart, and then miraculously built, rebuilt three days. What are we saying? That the source of comfort happens at the cross. Where does God himself live in both pain and in power? Is it not at the cross where God himself dies? And yet even as he's dying, we now know that three days 
is all that can, that's, 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 that's the max length of time that he can stay dead. Resurrection power is pulsating in his body, dying to get out, dying to explode. Jesus dying on the cross is the weakest moment and the most powerful moment in the history of the universe. It's the most broken moment and the most beautiful moment in the history of the universe. In other words, it is the moment where comfort, capital C, actually happens. It's the moment where God, Holy Week is the moment where God has one foot in the grave and one foot resurrected at the same time. And now what's he saying is this. Actually, let me do this. Let me do it this way. 2 Corinthians 1. What are we going to do with this? Let me get, this is the uh, epistle reading from our uh, uh, reading today. Look at verse 5. Paul says this, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Those two things actually go together. Comfort only makes sense if it's happening in suffering. And what Paul is saying is this, you want to experience God? You want to experience Jesus? You want to know who he is? You find him at the cross. In the moment of his greatest weakness, you find him at the cross, and that is also the moment of his greatest power. And what that means is, wherever you're at, your goal should not be ease. Your goal should not be peace. Your goal should be comfort. To live in this broken world, embracing it as a way to experience the sufferings of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 1. But also as a way to experience the joy of the resurrection, which you guys who are in Christ are experiencing experiencing even now and are guaranteed to experience it fully on the last day. That's our comfort. Take it. Live in it. Go to the cross. Freely give it to others. That's the comfort of Jesus Christ. Let's stand and pray. Pray with me here. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Listen to my cry. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. In righteousness I shall see you. When I awake, your presence will give me joy. Be present, merciful God, and protect us through the hours of this night so that we who are wearied by the changes and chances of life may find our rest in you, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Now taught by our Lord and trusting His promises, we are bold to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit bless you and keep you. Amen.